Welcome back. Welcome to Phenomenal Flicks. Before I get into the review today, which I will have of Jurassic Park with my buddy Mike Vlaz, I am going to give you the next edition of Scared to Beth, where she reviews a nightmare on Elm Street. Take it away, Beth. I was really nervous to watch Nightmare on Elm Street. I didn't really know anything about it besides the um, episode of Rick and Morty where they kind of parody it. Um, but I didn't even particularly watch that episode for that storyline, but another storyline, but uh, that's for another day. I was annoyed by Nightmare on Elm Street at the start because it seemed like it was using cheap jump scares and I just didn't think that that was what the film was about. But then later on as we got into the dream sequences, it really um, kind of captured what it was like to wake up from a nightmare and like feel that same sort of anxiety because it's not the same anxiety you feel um, when you're just awake and you think you see something out of the corner of your eye or something. It's like the anxiety of things changing when they shouldn't be and just like the feeling of helplessness and yeah anyways um yeah I thought it was really good um I didn't like it as much as The Exorcist but it's up there would recommend kind of that's right everyone welcome back to Phenomenal Flicks I'm your host Tommy Tracy and I am once again joined by my very first guest on this podcast the first return that I've had we are discussing the film Jurassic Park directed by Steven Spielberg. So say hello to everyone, Mike Vlaz. What's up, Phenomenal Flicks Universe? You can tell that this is the third or fourth time we've tried to do this by just <laughs> how quickly straight through. No more build-up, no more mystery, no more like, oh, I wonder what movie we're talking about. Right. <laughs> we're getting right to it. I thought the film and, and the director deserved a little pizzazz right off the bat. but Yeah, I mean... It's hard to talk about 1993 and not put all of our focus directly on Fred Drecker, Decker and, and Robocop 3, <laughs> but uh, I'm really going to try to focus on, on Jurassic Park. So as, as I mentioned, um, Mike, as you've heard on my Guns Akimbo episode, which was my second episode, he is back for round two, Electric Boogaloo on Phenomenal Flicks. And last time we sort of just got into the review of Guns Akimbo, but as I did with my previous guest, Ryan Larson, um, I want to get a little background on you, Mike, sort of what you do um, in the the film world, if anything, um, how your relation to pop culture is, um, how you feel about movies in general, and then, I mean, you know, what your favorite movie is, um, we'll leave a little tension for that coming up but sure mike just kind of get right into it um what is your sort of background with film in general um yeah my background with film in general is that i'm a huge fan of film in general um, 
yeah no i um uh i i love movies you know um i'm on a movie podcast obviously talking about a movie i love movies um but yeah i mean i just love uh uh, pop culture like i i I think i talked about it last time but i just um movies for me have just always been like kind of like a special form of storytelling like i read books and i play video games and i watch tv and but like like a movie has just always seemed kind of you know like it's an event like going to a theater even when i was a kid um you know not being in a household where like we were allowed to watch a lot of tv and stuff so like over the weekends when it was like okay it's saturday night we're gonna sit down me and my brother my dad and we're gonna watch a movie it just felt like an event very early on and uh and that kind of carried on and like it's easy to get a little um you know it just kind of feel like a little stale and stuff with these with kind of things and like oh i've seen everything in movies and i've seen everything they can do but um really especially over the last uh, I would say probably like the last 10 years, like my, my personal love of cinema has really started to like grow and develop. And um, it bums me out every year. Cause there's so many movies that I want to see. And you know, this Tommy, because we talk about movies all the time. Like there's so many movies that I want to see that I just never get around to seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's such a bummer because I love just like, I love talking about uh, the emotional experiences of entertainment. And I mean, movies being like, the visual entertainment medium um it's just it's always so much fun to just like talk about what a movie means to you and what you love about it and 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 your emotional response to it and and movies that are just so special to people that you don't even think about you can meet somebody and they could just be like oh yeah this totally random movie that you saw once and thought was totally forget about forgettable has this deep meaning to me and let me tell you why um and i don't know that you really get that to that level in other forms of entertainment. No, oh, yeah, I would, I would absolutely agree. Um, thank you for a very, uh, a different answer to the question, one that I did not expect, but one that I 100% agree with you on. I, I feel the exact same way. Um, so as you said, you, you know, you love cinema, you love pop culture. Um, I mean, I'm going to bury the lead here. Mike, what is your favorite movie? And it just so happens to be the one we're discussing today. I, it's Jurassic Park. Um, I mean, undoubtedly, it's not an answer to a question I ever have to think about. You can ask me about my favorite actor, my favorite series, my favorite franchise, my favorite band, whatever. Um, and, well, maybe not favorite band, but I mean, so many of those questions like are are contextual to like where you're at in your life and what's going on, all of that. And since the day I saw Jurassic Park to today, it's hands down always. It's my favorite book. It's my favorite movie. And it always has been and always will be. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a pretty big phenomenon. Everyone has heard about Jurassic Park. I would hope everyone has seen Jurassic Park. And just to let you guys know, unlike my weekend and release reviews, we are going to spoil the absolute shit out of this. Uh, but I mean, yeah, if you if you're listening to this, if you're <laughs> if you're subscribed to and listening to a podcast about movies and have not seen Jurassic Park, please push the pause button. Go watch Jurassic Park. And come back and listen to the rest of this episode. Yeah, spend, uh, again, I'm going to bury the lead. Spend 126 glorious minutes watching this fantastic film. And, yeah, and then come back and listen to it. Um, so this this film obviously has been in our cultural zeitgeist for 27 years. I mean, it's it's pretty much 27 years and a month old at the time that this will be released. So, it's in the infamous 27 Club as well, but Mike, what is it about 
Jurassic Park that is so special to you and and to pretty much anyone else do you think that watches big kind of summer blockbusters like this? There's a there's a question that I know you're going to ask me towards the end of this podcast. Can't um, wait. Because you asked Ryan this question on Jaws and it's it's funny that you were doing Jaws and Jurassic Park which are obviously both huge Steven Spielberg movies. Mm-hmm. And I know you're going to ask me, do I think this is Steven Spielberg's best directed film? <laughs> and and I'm, I'm getting to answer your question about what is so special about this. Um, I, I won't say that this is Steven Spielberg's best directed film because I don't feel qualified to answer that question right now. Um, just because there's so many movies of his that I have not seen in such a long time. I will say that there's two movies... Normally, I like to play the whole like, oh, what if so-and-so had directed this or what if so-and-so had been in this instead or whatever? How would that look? There's two movies in existence that would not exist had they not been directed by Steven Spielberg. And that is, coincidentally enough, Jaws and Jurassic Park. And what makes this movie so special, aside from the fact that it's dinosaurs, because everybody in the world loves dinosaurs. That's reason number one. Reason number two is Spielberg, because there's one thing he can do better than any other director in history. And that is direct dinosaurs, direct dinosaurs. Yeah. Um, His ability to combine genres and to blend tones together. Mm -hmm. Jurassic Park. If if somebody said, hey, what kind of movie is Jurassic Park? You uh, I guess it's a sci fi adventure movie. But it's it's an adventure movie. It's a thriller. It's sort of a coming of age story. It's sci-fi. It's about the hubris of humanity. Like he just, it's a horror movie. He combines all of these element, elements. You, you feel such an elated sense of awe and wonder. And then almost immediately are feeling such terror and horror and suspense. It, it's just, I don't like making broad sweeping comments but i don't know how anybody can watch this movie and not find something in it to latch on to and i think that is what makes this movie so special in addition to all of the other things we'll talk about but like if i was going to give the simplest and i realized that was a very long-winded answer but there's just something in this movie for everybody to emotionally connect with oh yeah no i would i would absolutely agree whether it be a certain character um, a love or a wonder about, you know, uh, a prehistoric era that came millions upon millions of years before we did. Um, special effects. Um, you mentioned the horror and the sci-fi aspect, kind of learning new things about that, kind of qualming your anxieties with the horror. This film has something for everybody. And if you don't know the plot of it, I mean, this is a basic bare bones plot I'm going to go through. And this is straight from IMDb. So bear with me because... We're going to get into the movie, like I said. We're going to spoil it. If, but If this is the IMDb description I think you're going to read, I love this because it's the, it's such a terrible... I, I, I don't know if it is. Let's see. I Actually, if it's not, I would hope you can kind of paraphrase the IMDb one after me. But uh, So the film is set on the fictional island of uh, Isla Nublar, uh, which is located kind of in Central America, Pacific Coast area, close to Costa Rica. The wealthy businessman, John Hammond, who is played by Richard... Richard Attenborough, I have such problems with like three or four R's in a row that I start to stumble over them. Forgive me. Well, you also, he is, he's Sir Richard Attenborough. Sir Richard Attenborough, yes. I usually try and uh, make sure I get the sirs in there, but I forgot this time. 
um, and his team of genetic scientists have created a wildlife park. It's basically a theme park of de-extinct dinosaurs. Um, an industrial sabotage leads to a catastrophic shutdown of the park facilities. And uh, two paleontologists, uh, played by Sam Neill and Laura Dern, and a what is Jeff Goldblum's actual? He is a here? he is a mathematician. A mathematician, yeah, which is the most boring title on the planet. But a mathematician <laughs> have to figure out how to save the park themselves and uh, Hammond's two young grandchildren. Was that the? No, IMDb no. This one? is this this comes from IMDb. This synopsis, I'm going to read it here verbatim. It is a pragmatic paleontologist visiting an almost complete theme park is tasked with protecting a couple of kids after a power failure causes the park's cloned dinosaurs to run loose. God, that's so much better. That was the exact film in one sentence. Um, it's great. I, I wrote down, I took more notes. I, I know this movie backwards and forwards. You can put the movie on and hit the mute button and I can recite it almost word for word. I took more notes while watching this movie last night than I've taken during entire semester long classes, <laughs> but I scribbled down. So the tagline is famously an adventure 63 million years in the making, yeah. which was a, a quip that Spielberg said in response to something on set. But I think the tagline for this playing off of, off of what you just said. It is the most exciting story of industrial sabotage ever told. Yeah, wow, that's a, actually also a fantastic one. <laughs> um, yeah, so let's do a little background on the movie. I know now I know a lot about this film, but if you want to hear me talk about backgrounds on movies, you could just listen to my normal episodes. This is one of my retrospective episodes, and that's why I invited you here. You are the Jurassic Park superfan. This is your favorite movie, so. What kind of went into the making of this film that people might not know? Um, you can even start with Crichton's book if you'd like. I would love to start with Crichton's book. Um, and I'm going to try not to talk about Crichton too much because he is my, my favorite author. Uh, but this is absolutely my favorite book. And if you love the movie and have never read the book, I absolutely encourage you to because it's um, it's it's such a different version of the same story. And it's it's so enjoyable. But... Um, so a little bit of background on Crichton as an author. Um, so, uh, God, let me jump around here. Sorry. Let's start in um, 1989. Steven Spielberg, Spielberg and Michael Crichton are having a meeting and talking about a script um, that eventually would go on to become uh, the TV show ER, created by Michael Crichton. Um Crichton mentions that he's working on a screenplay, maybe about a college student that recreates a dinosaur. And Spielberg says, yeah, that sounds great. You should write a book about it. Um, fast forward to 1990, which is when the book is published. Prior to the book being published, four movie studios were bidding for the filming rights to this movie or to this book before it was even published. Um, and obviously, Universal Studios with Steven Spielberg won. They won, they paid one and a half million dollars for the film rights to a book that hadn't even come out yet. But um, here's something I didn't know until doing some extra research for this podcast. I'm going to tell you the other three studios and directors that were bidding on this movie, because you might be interested to think about what those would have been like. Um, 21st Century Fox with Joe Dante were bidding on the film rights to Jurassic Park. Um... If you don't know Joe Dante, he did Gremlins, which right there is like Gremlins doing Jurassic Park is pretty interesting. Absolutely. Uh, Columbia with Richard Donner. 
Uh, Superman director Richard Donner. Superman director Richard Donner. And then Warner Brothers. Would you like to take a guess in early 1990 what director was attached with Warner Brothers to try to do Jurassic Park? All right. I think I'm going to get it wrong, but I'm going to take a stab at it and say Tim Burton. How ridiculous would Tim Burton's Jurassic (laughs) Park have been? Uh, But yeah, fortunately, Universal and Spielberg won. Uh, they paid one and a half million dollars, which is just under three million dollars in 2020 money for the rights for the book, and then paid Crichton an additional five hundred thousand dollars to adapt his own book into a screenplay, which sounds like a pretty sweet deal to me. Yeah, right. Um, Crichton said that his screenplay had between ten and twenty percent of the book's content in the screenplay, which is absolutely true. There's a dozen subplots that are left out of the movie, um, which I'll kind of touch on as we get into the mo- in, into going through the movie itself. But um, Crichton coming into Jurassic Park being published in 1990 and the movie coming out in 93. In 1969, he wrote The Andromeda Strain, which was turned into a movie in 1971. In 1972, he wrote Terminal Man, a movie in 1974. In 1975, he wrote The Grand Train Robbery, which was adapted in 1978. Um so there was some clout to his books before then in 76, he published eaters of the dead, which wasn't made into a movie until 1999. Uh, but they changed the title to the 13th warrior. Um, and then in 1980, he published Congo, which got picked up immediately after Jurassic park and put out as a movie in 95 in 87. He wrote sphere, which came out as a movie in 98 uh, in 1992. He wrote um, rising sun, which was also a film that came out in 1993. So, there was a reason for the studios to want in on Crichton's work. He'd established himself as he also had written teleplays and screenplays himself. Um, so he was a known entity and known for putting out high quality work. So it wasn't like insane that these movie studios were bidding for his film rights before his stuff was even out. Yeah. Um, all, all just, fantastic information about a guy who i mean if you, if you don't know the books that he's written you've at least heard of i hope most of these movies uh great train robbery and sphere being personal favorites of mine he um, also uh disclosure came out in 1994 um the book did in 1994 so if you don't know any of these movies you probably at least know the tv show er yes right um in 1994 while jurassic park was still in theaters uh, Michael Crichton became the first and still only person ever to own the number one movie, which was Jurassic Park, the number one TV show, which was ER, and the number one book, which was Disclosure, all at the same time. Yeah, that's and that's a feat that probably will not be beaten anytime soon. Yeah, probably not ever. Anyway, Spielberg got the got the book. He loved the idea, um, and you can understand why. Like everything about the story of. Um, kind of a a darker Walt Disney type character creating an island of cloned dinosaurs is like that's everything about that says Steven Spielberg to me. Absolutely. It's that 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 speaks Amblin Entertainment. Yeah. Spielberg described it as um, his quote. He said it was a really credible look at how dinosaurs might someday be brought back alongside modern man. Um, And that's a great really simple look at why it was appealing. Michael Crichton was really well known for this kind of presentation style of treating fiction as fact. He would do exhaustive research on the topic and get to wherever things were in this case, like modern genetics and see how far they'd come, what they thought they were going to be doing in the future. And then himself developing the next step for that. So he was really able to go, Hey, um, cloning dinosaurs. And you're like, well, that's a ridiculous concept. And then he could go, yeah, but, and then you go, Oh my God, that is actually sounds super plausible to me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, sorry if you heard my dog bark in the background, um, but 
these are these are all things that and I feel other directors have done it too. Alfred Hitchcock personally with Psycho took an idea and kind of made it into a phenomenon that we all talk about today. It really takes a special talent to be able to just already see a film in your head as you're reading a book. Like I, I know when you read a book, you have your own interpretation of what the characters look like, what everything looks like, but these people will take it and they will visualize the movie that they're about to create in their head as they're reading it word by word, page by page. Yeah. Um, Spielberg actually, so he finished doing hook, right. And then he got in Jurassic park, but he didn't want to make it right away. He wanted to go make Schindler's list. And um, universal only let him, they only greenlit Schindler's list if he did Jurassic park first. So he ended up doing, and, and this again, just speaks to the vision of Steven Spielberg to piggyback onto what you were saying. Um, he did hook and then immediately did Jurassic park. And then immediately did Schindler's list, which is like the moving just in your mindset from like those three movies to each other. (laughs) And not only that, he was in Poland filming Schindler's list during the day while overseeing the post-production remotely on Jurassic park at night. Right. Like the the ability to, (laughs) to balance just those two, the workload aside is insane, but just the ability to balance those two insanely different I mean, those movies are as different from each other as they could possibly be. Right. So, and obviously both movies are fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Steven Spielberg had probably the biggest year of a director in, in 1993, both Jurassic Park and Schindler's List, as you mentioned, came out. One was in June. I believe Schindler's List was in December. Mm-hmm. Um, and he he had two vastly different movies that I know Jurassic Park was the number one movie of that year. I think Schindler's List was four or five. Um, Jurassic Park was the number one movie of all time until this stupid movie about a boat came out in 1997. (laughs) Titanic, your, your favorite movie. That's a podcast for another time that I would love to talk to you about, but yeah, I mean, he had, he had probably one of the best, best years a director could have with two vastly different movies that are both beloved and respected in two different ways. Um, obviously this isn't a Schindler's List podcast that would be incredibly depressing. I would love to get to that one day, but, um, yeah, he, he had a film that has lived on for 27 years, as I mentioned. Um, so let's kind of get into the, the meat of the movie. I mean, Mike, where do we start? What is it? What is the first scene that we see? And did, as a kid, did it like entrance you right away or does it take a little bit to kind of get into this movie this movie is um and i want i want to go through the cast uh, later when we get to it and kind of wrap up the cast but it opens with the character robert muldoon played by bob peck mm-hmm. um it opens on the island it's dark it's nighttime you've got guys in uniforms and guys with guns and labor you know people in in like uh work uniforms uh construction uniforms that's the word my goodness um <laughs> And we're all staring off into this forest and and uh, Peck's character Muldoon just immediately stands out because he's not dressed like anybody else. And um, I'm going to focus on Bob Peck a lot throughout this podcast because I think he just steals every second of screen time he has in this movie. But um, it's this big misdirect immediately. Everybody's armed. Everybody's watching these trees. Something big is coming and you're like, oh my God, we're going to get like a T-Rex right out the gate. And then it's just, it's a forklift. <laughs> right with the big gray box Mm -hmm. um 
this scene is fantastic because you are immediately put into this world. There's no um, exposition. There's no explanation. There's no setting up what's going on or anything. You immediately know that something serious has happened um, just due to the tone. You have the, the score throughout this entire movie, um, courtesy of John Williams, is just amazing. Um, and, and everything about this movie that makes this movie great starts out the instant the movie begins. Yeah. I mean, this movie does not hold back any punches right from the beginning. Um, I, you mentioned you were, I believe seven when this came out, right? Mm -hmm. So I was three. This isn't a memory I have from seeing it in theaters right away. I, I definitely saw it on home video for the first time, maybe at five or six. Um, and it's, you mentioned the genre bending. This starts out right away horror movie monster movie something that's gonna entice preteens or teenagers something that's gonna scare the shit out of children and it sucks you in right away you are you want to know what is attacking these people you want to know what the rest of the film holds and you want to see dinosaurs kind of at their best i guess as the most as humans can and see you them as. you get to see a di- i mean you almost kind of get to see the raptor right away you have the great shot mm-hmm. of the eyes you, you yep. get Muldoon's eyes to the raptor's eyes and it, I mean, Spielberg is easily one of the best ever at the the show. Don't tell, and like yeah. just just give him a little, just give him a little. Um, and right, and unlike Jaws, everything actually worked. For everything the part, for the most part worked. Yeah, yeah. Um, there were some issues with the T Rex, which we'll get to when we get to the T Rex. But um, the other thing that I thought was really brilliant, because so Crichton co-wrote the screenplay for this. Mm-hmm. Um, this scene isn't in the book, but you see the aftermath of this scene in the book. Um, so it was just, it was a really brilliant kind of way to take something that existed and, and go, okay, let's look at it from a different angle to start this movie off with. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's, it's wonder and awe and suspense from minute number one. Um, yeah, and then, and then we're introduced to uh, Sam Neill's character, Alan Grant. Um, they are him and his, now, see, this always confused me when I was younger. You get a little more gist of it, but it's basically his partner, um, Ellie Sattler, played by Laura Dern. Yeah, there's like an undefined romantic relationship in the movie between them. And she's about uh, 64 years his junior. Um, <laughs> but not so much. But Alan Grant or uh, Sam Neill was definitely in his mid-40s, and Laura Dern was, I still believe in her, if not early 20s, mid-20s at this point. If you wanted to dig into it, it's almost like, well, he's the professor. Maybe she was the grad student and she hung around. Indiana Jones did, essentially. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there's a crossover right there. Indiana Jones and Alan Grant on an adventure together. God, Well, let's get to writing it. But uh, (laughs) they're on on an archaeological dig. And uh, this is one of my favorite scenes because it reminds me of my older brother, who I always loved dinosaurs. And he just could not give a shit. He didn't really care about science. Um, he didn't think any of that was interesting. And he sort of pokes fun. This kid pokes fun at Dr. Grant as he finds this raptor claw. Well, not just the kid, but even his team like laughs at him when he brings up the theory that dinosaurs evolved into birds, which is right. even at the time was kind of the prevailing prevailing theory. So you get that. And then this kid and it's just this really brilliant character introduction of Grant where he's our expert and immediately he's being questioned. And it just kind of shows like the way he reacts to his colleagues and then the way he reacts to this kid really, um, really settles in who his character is like right away. Like, you know, exactly. Okay. This is like a no nonsense kind of guy, but he also kind of knows how to like, you know, like he totally fucks with that kid. 
Yeah. <laughs> right? like, I mean, that, that claw is terrifying. It's always been a dream of mine to own a raptor claw. I don't know if it will ever happen. But, yeah, you know, he's, as you said, he's getting scoffed at by not only a preteen, but grown adults. And then we get the introduction of um, Richard Edwards' character, John Hammond. And this is where I think his character sort of turns because then he sees the respect that he should be given. It's given to him by Hammond. Yeah. And fortunately for him, Hammond is the guy that is paying for everything that he does. Right. Um, when I was in uh, second grade, which may have been the year this movie came out, um, I wanted to be a paleontologist. And then I found out that paleontologists don't make any money and you have to get funding for everything and all of that. And um, abandoned that dream at a very early age. But And you didn't, you didn't want to be a Ross Geller type. Didn't want to be a Ross Geller type. I don't know why anybody would want to be. <laughs> um, but yeah, so Hammond comes in and immediately you know exactly what the dynamic is in this relationship and this guy's paying for everything that's going on, but they've never met before. But you, without having to have it explained to you, you understand why Hammond is funding paleontolog- paleontological research and why he's funding these digs and why he wants, you know, like, there's, it's just, when you watch a good, just a great movie that is so well written and like, you don't have to have mountains of exposition and you don't have to have things just beating you over the head, explaining character motivations and stuff. It's, I don't know. There's, it's just something that makes watching the movie and enjoying the movie so easy. And you get that beautifully in this scene because it immediately sets up who Grant is and it immediately sets up who Hammond is and what their motivations are, you know? Um, and that's pretty consistent throughout the movie with every character. Like every character is introduced very well in terms of who they are as a person. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've always thought, let's talk about uh, kind of switch gears to Ellie Settler, Sattler, sorry, who is Sattler, uh, yeah. Yeah, played by Laura Dern. I always thought as much as I do enjoy her character and I am actually a, a pretty big Laura Dern fan, that she's sort of kind of underdeveloped here. She's the, as you mentioned, they have an undefined um, undefined relationship between her and, and Grant, but she wants something more stable. She wants kids in the future, and he's always sort of noncommittal. We get that when you meet the grandchildren of Hammond, that he becomes more parental, but do you feel like I've always felt that her character is sort of stuck in that sort of hope? She is a smart scientist. She is a paleobotanist, technically. Um, but someone who's kind of stuck in that homemaker mentality? Um, it, a little bit. I think when you watch, especially the scene where she's kind of teasing him about wanting kids and he's like, oh, they're cheap or they're, they're expensive and smelling, whatever. It kind of feels like she's really more just teasing him about it and the fact that he just doesn't like kids. Um, I don't, I wouldn't say that she's like a, a homemaker type character or anything like that stuck in that. Um, she is undeveloped in in the in the film compared to the book, but all of the characters are, and I can tell you exactly whose fault that is. Um, that's, would, it, would, would it be uh, the second writer of the film, David Coep? Yeah, who who I I like him a lot as a screenwriter, but he said when he was writing this, he's like he had some 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 quote about as soon as the characters started talking about their personal life, you couldn't care or couldn't care less or or whatever, um, and he definitely took a lot of that out. Um, but I think that's redeemed a lot in the second and third act of the movie where Ellie, maybe more than any other character, isn't even like the reluctant hero. She's very much like, yeah, this is what needs to happen. Let's get it done. 
Right. Um, and I think that that really, like, her character, I wouldn't say she's underdeveloped. I think we just don't see her character until later in the film. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree. In the, in the last third, especially of the movie, when she goes to, like, turn the power back on and she um, helps the kids kind of escape the Velociraptor, she's a lot more of a capable character during those spots than I felt that she was at the beginning of the film. Yeah, she's proven to be a more capable character than most of the other characters in the movie, you know? Um, so we get to we get to uh, Isla Nublar, and we hear that amazing orchestral score. Well, before we do Williams. before we do that, I have to make sure we don't skip over the scene in Costa Rica. Oh yeah, uh, with Wayne correct. Knight's introduction as Dennis Nedry, because I think Wayne Knight, like, it's so easy to be like, oh, he's Newman in Seinfeld, ha ha. Um, but he's such an amazing actor, yeah. and he does such a like. A lot of the the kind of the the subplot and everything with Nedry is kind of thrown out the window, and he's really just kind of painted more as like, a, oh, I'm stealing this stuff because I want more money. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like the undertones there and the subtext to it is that you know he bid this job, and Hammond was like, this is the job, and this is what I'm going to pay you, and he's like, cool, I'll do it. And then Hammond just kept going, oh, but you have to do this, and 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 wasn't paying him more money. Um, and it's the whole Hammond's famous line of spared no expense it doesn't come through in the movie quite as well as it should, I guess, or as well as it does in the book, but like, it's a complete bullshit line because Hammond cut corners everywhere. Right. And that comes up even when they're like, when they get out of the cars and Muldoon's like, I told you we needed locks on the doors. And we watched this last night. And my wife goes, why was that not a feature anyway? And I'm like, because Hammond cut corners fucking everywhere, <laughs> including with his chief engineer who eventually got so fed up. He's like, okay, well I'm going to sell you out to this other guy. Right. And what I like about uh, Dennis Nedry's character, Wayne Knight's character, is that he he's a bad guy in that sense. Like he's the one who's going to screw over his employer. He's going to get these um, DNA samples to a rival of sorts and do it for money. But you kind of understand why he does that. Like you said, Hammond cut all these corners and it ended up screwing over Dennis in this theory. So he wants to, A, make money and B, kind of stick it to his employer. It's not right, but it's also kind of right. he's a not gray like, area. He's not like a villain. He just yeah. happens to be the instigator of, Everything you know, it's kind wrong. of like, <laughs> like, yes, he shuts the park down, but also like the storm just happened to hit, which screwed up his plan and all. And it's kind of like. Uh, just all this stuff kind of piled up on top of it and he was just kind of the instigator of it. And like, obviously he didn't intend for the dinosaurs to get out. He didn't intend for people to get eaten and stuff. Right. Um, and if his plan had gone off the way it was supposed to, none of that would have happened. Yeah. Uh, or maybe it would have, you know, life finds a way and chaos and all of that. But, <laughs> but yeah, we get his his great character introduction. We get the don't get cheap on me Dodson line where, yeah, you know. see, nobody cares. Yeah, uh, it's so good. Um, yeah. yeah. He's a, no, I mean he's a very fantastic actor, and I, I'm not a huge Seinfeld guy, but I understand his. I understand the appeal. Um, he's also in. You said this is like your first um, kind of movie theater memory. Um, my first movie theater memory is Space Jam. So he is, yes, he is that. in Space Jam. Man, I always yeah. forget he's in Space Jam. He's also in Basic Instinct, which Spielberg saw him in that movie and cast him based off of that. Huh, excellent, that I did so. not know. But yeah, uh, you get his introduction, and then we get the scene. I was then we get yeah. Now I'm we very can glad properly you interrupted be, me. yeah properly be wowed. We yeah. get the great scene in the helicopter. We're introduced to Malcolm. We're introduced to or we reintroduced to Gennaro. We saw him briefly earlier in the movie. Right, and Doctor Ian Malcolm is played by the fantastic jeff goldblum uh, just, i call um, him the wizard of Uz. He, he's so i mean this obviously like he he'd done movies before obviously um he was in the fly and uh earth girls are easy and like he obviously was a known entity but he wasn't like a superstar but like this is 
He was in The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension, which is one of my favorite 80s movies of all time. It's such... I mean, I'm going to say career-defining performance because it is, but I I kind of want to say, like, everybody in this movie, with the exception of Attenborough, who was already a legend, mm-hmm. it it wasn't just a career-defining... It wasn't a career-defining movie in the way that, like, Star Wars was for a lot of, where, like, Mark Hamill was Luke Skywalker for the rest of his life, whether he wanted to be or not. It was, like, a career-defining moment in that these... They all gave amazing performances and skyrocketed and not just because of the popularity i mean partly because of the popularity of the movement but i mean you watch this and you just go down the list like okay amazing actor amazing actor amazing actor amazing actor mm-hmm. um and goldblum right at the top of the list because his performance is it's it is literally a legendary performance yeah so um you know grant and settler are kind of by the books grant more so than settler but malcolm who is a as you said a mathematician also a chaos theorist is sort of like the rock star of the movie he's got his own ideals he doesn't want to do anything by the book he kind of wants to figure things out as they happen he's super eccentric he wears all black every day because he says he doesn't want to waste his brain on having to figure out fashion and like (laughs) it's because and it's 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 again it's like it's based in reality because chaos theory was a brand new thing yeah in the late 80s and early 90s and like those scientists were like the rock stars of scientists mm-hmm. um, and it comes back weirdly enough this circles back into jurassic park 3 when they there's a comment made about how malcolm seemed like he was super high on himself um and it absolutely you know the way that he is immediately flirting with ellie and he's just fucking with hammond and he's just there to have a good like he he fully expects the park to be a failure and a huge disaster and he's just relishing the moment when he gets to say i told you so yeah, absolutely. Which, I mean, do you feel he gets that sort of moment to be able to say, I told you so? Or do you think he's so grateful by being saved? <laughs> he gets the moment and I think he kind of lets it go. Yeah. You know, because he, at that point, it's pretty obvious and I don't think it needs to be said. Yeah. He's also he, at that point um, high on morphing for like the entire rest of the movie. Too, so, right. Which I don't I know didn't that he's really thinking kid, super it, clearly. But, actually, I didn't notice. Uh, it yeah, he de- he definitely is a character that lives for saying "I told you so," and yeah. um, essentially does. I mean, he doesn't say those words, but you get to that point where, to kind of briefly, quickly jump ahead since this is on topic, um, you have the point where he's in the car, where Hammond is watching him in the car and says, "I really hate that man," and really establishing their they don't like each other relationship, and then you jump to the end when Hammond is getting. Um, Ellie the instructions on how to turn the power back on and every time he's about to say something to her he looks to Malcolm and Malcolm nods and then he says it and it just it's like this very subtle like okay Hammond's realized Malcolm was right and now he's looking to him for approval so I think that kind of is his I told you so moment but at that point he's got 90% of his legs been chewed off and he doesn't care yeah I mean, it's the it's the subtleness of, I think, the performances. Um, me and Ryan, well, Ryan actually mentioned this in, in the Jaws review, where it's the, the character moments that really make the movie. Yes, it's about the spectacle and about the the scare factor, the violence, the music, but the, the character moments, this movie wouldn't be nearly as impactful if it wasn't for those small things that help you connect to each and every person, at least in some small way. Right. And, you know, focusing on we're inside the helicopter and we're about to hear John Williams' amazing score. And, like, one of the very first things Malcolm says is, you've heard of chaos theory. Chaos theory. Not like, let me tell you about this. It's just that automatic, like, I'm awesome and I know that you know the thing that I do. Right. <laughs> you know, so, 
Um, yeah, and then Hamlin says we're here, and we pan out, and we get. Oh, John Williams' score in this movie is just so good. Yeah, I mean, it's let so me good. let me let you in on a secret. Um, my favorite movie is The Empire Strikes Back, and followed very closely by Halloween, um, which have two fantastic scores all throughout the movies. But yet, it's Jurassic Park's score is my favorite film score of all time. And there's something that Williams does where he, he is quiet at the right moments. He is subtle at the right moments and he lets everything swell to the exact right second. And then he lets loose. And I'm using a lot of hand motions that no one can see right now. <laughs> I always but, do the same thing. Yeah. He, uh, he just, kind of, he really got this one. And like, he's, he's one of the best film composers of all time. Hands down. It's his, it's his best of performance. Yeah. You know, like the guy's written every iconic movie theme in existence you know but like you think back to like uh raiders of the lost ark well the theme song is obviously amazing but how well do you remember that score you know and star wars the theme song is amazing and the imperial march is amazing and princess leia's theme is amazing but how well do you really remember like the score Mm -hmm. you know um this was the first time ever uh that i wanted the cd of a movie's School, you know, at the time I was just like, I just want the soundtrack to the movie, but I wanted the score. This is the first time ever that I've just wanted to listen to the score of a, of a movie as a as a seven or eight year old, and that to me is like like to get a, a young child to want to listen to instrumental <laughs> symphonic music is nearly uh, impossible. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Yeah, and then it's it's the mix of the the beautiful score we're talking about, the great cinematography by Dean Cundey the editing, the direction and the acting by the leads that just that this it's not my favorite moment, but it's probably the best moment of the film. Um, would you kind of agree with that? It's kind of like the mix of everything, the editing, the music, the cinematography that kind of make this that's Jurassic Park right there. And I can tell by your intake. It's, that it's, maybe it's really hard to argue. And obviously the, the only contender for that is the, the Brachiosaur welcome to Jurassic Park scene. Right. You know, uh, but I think if you just if you look at it as one like the approach to the island to the visitor center, like if you kind of look at that little journey is just kind of one. I mean, obviously, it's inarguable like that is the movie because you feel everything that you're it's wonder and it's awe and amazement and it's disbelief. And um, I've read that Sam Neill doesn't think his he, he part of the reason why he wanted to do Jurassic Park three is because he didn't think his performance in Jurassic Park was that good. And I'm just like, what are you talking about? Right. <laughs> because the moment when Grant sees the Brachiosaur and realizes that there's dinosaurs and Hammond tells him there's a T-Rex mm-hmm. and then he's like looking out. You know, he's he's collapsed in disbelief and is just looking out over the herds of like it's just you're feeling everything he's like, I don't know why he would think that that performance isn't good because it's absolutely fantastic. Absolutely. And he doesn't say anything. I mean, he does, but he doesn't say much. It's all in his face and his sort of reactions to all this that really help sell what Hammond's selling essentially. Um, I like that you bring up that moment as well, because you and I, I assume in our thirties, I still do love dinosaurs. Like that's they're they're just fucking awesome. They're scientifically just kind of the most interesting thing to me. And we would get excited at the thought of a Triceratops or a Brachiosaurus or God forbid a T-Rex. But to someone who has dedicated his entire life to something like this, that's, that's what you see in, in Grant's face at that moment. 
yeah, it, it it's just all of that wonder and that expectation and um, having something be so much better than your wildest dreams ever could have comprehended. Right. You know, um, and also like Hammond didn't tell them what was on the island, you know, um, I think it's alluded to in the movie and I think it's straight up stated in the novel that Malcolm knew what was on the island before he got there and Gennaro knew what was on the island before he got there, but like he didn't tell Grant and Sadler. Yeah. Because Hammond's a showman, right? He wants that moment. This is a test run of his park for him. He wants to see exactly what he gets. And as as fans and viewers watching the movie, we want to feel that, right? You're going to see a movie with dinosaurs, and it's supposed to be the most realistic lifelike dinosaurs ever seen. You You want to have that kind of reaction. And then seeing that reaction justified on screen by the character having that reaction mm-hmm. you know it's just i mean there's a reason why that everybody knows that scene you know yeah. it rears up on its hind legs and it lets out that bellow and it stomps back down and it's it's a it's a it's a computer generated dinosaur but it's like it's, it's magic it's beautiful it's yeah. like natural beauty it's just uh not to mention how well it still holds up yeah you know, well, uh, I mean, let's let's talk about that. I mean, the the effects are done by uh, ILM, which stands for Industrial Lights and Magic, who a lot of people would know from Star Wars. Um, this film, like we've said dozens of times at this point, is 27 years old. It mixes animatronics, practical effects with CGI, which was very new at the time. And it's still I still say if you can't beat Jurassic Park's effects, then even in today's standards by 2020, then you're doing your film wrong. I mean, this still looks amazing for the most part. I mean, there's some, there's some little things you can see that you're like, oh, okay, that doesn't hold up as well. But I'd say about 99% this film still holds up perfectly. So uh, film historian Tom Schoen, his, his quote regarding exactly what you just talked about, he said, Jurassic Park heralded a revolution movies as profound as the coming of sound in 1927 and it absolutely like whether the movie or not once you know about all of the cg and you know about the the puppetry and everything and it's not just ilm like the first big thing ilm did like george lucas owned ilm and had no idea what they were capable of right, right. lucas watched this movie and went oh okay well now i can make my new star wars movies because this is possible Right. right, which uh, which are hilarious because they don't look nearly as good. They don't look nearly as good, um, but it's it, it was so. It was the breakthrough of ILM, um, Steven Spielberg invested in and which led to the official founding and creation of DTS, um, which was the only competition to Dolby um, in creating a new version of five point one surround sound because nothing at the time could handle the volume of sound and score and sound design that this movie had. So this movie revolutionized sound. Um, They uh, created, I'm sorry, I have so many notes here. Pardon me. Um, The the best people have scattered notes and I've noticed. Stan Winston, who who did all the puppetry in the movie, um, Stan Winston, then partnered with IBM and James Cameron as a result of what they did in this movie. And they created Digital Domain, Mm -hmm. who goes on to do, I'm sure you know who Digital Domain is. Um, but Digital Domain does visual effects in movies. The first three movies they did were True Lies, Interview with the Vampire, and Color of Night. Uh-huh. And they have since gone on to do over what the visual effects were over 100 movies, 
from Dante's Peak, Titanic, Fifth Element, Armageddon, the Transformers movies, X-Men First Class, Thor, uh, Sonic the Hedgehog, Avengers Endgame. Like, all of that came out of this movie. Right. Um, and it's just... Uh, it's remarkable. Like, the amount of work and everything that went into this. And, and like you said, for the most part, everything worked. They were going to do this version of stop motion called go motion that adds motion blur. And Spielberg was like, that just doesn't look good enough. And mm-hmm. then one of the producers was like, well, do it with computers. And he's like, well, prove to me that's possible. And then they did it. They did it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's great. And like, it works so well because you can't hardly even for most of the part, unless it's a close up shot, tell the difference between, is it Stan Winston puppetry or is it ILM CGI or is it, and I challenge you if you don't already know, Tommy, uh, two instances where the raptors were men in raptor suits you know you can't I actually i actually do not and i would love for you to tell not only yourself <laughs> but the people listening because i had heard about this and i i've yet to just look it up and see exactly what scenes it is i'm um, assuming it's got to be one of the kitchen scenes well, the kitchen scene um and then uh the raptor that kills Muldoon. Okay, that makes a lot of sense because it's hidden behind. Right, that one is much more telling because if you watch super close, you see the head doesn't change, the mouth doesn't close or anything right. like that. But interesting. Um, even knowing that, it's still hard to tell. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Anyway, I but, I diverge. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> it's it's this is a movie completely about science. Um, and, and worth it, noting, the movie won the three big technical Oscars too. Yeah, which it needed to because I can't, I don't know what it was up against, but it was nothing in 1993, especially that held yeah, up. Yeah, I mean, I, I could have looked it up, but it didn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, so, you know, now, it's a mo- oh, it's a movie about science and yeah. we're talking about the scientific possibilities yep. of people creating these animatronics and people creating these effects. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what, what, what parts of this, because I know there's some things that are scientifically not correct, do you think kind of stand out the most, like with the DNA, the mosquitoes, the well, amber yeah, and the so frogs? I was obsessed with this movie when it came out, right? And my parents knew that. So credit to them. Anytime there was any kind of story in a newspaper or anything, they would cut the newspaper article out for me. Um, for people who don't know, newspapers are um, ink <laughs> on paper. Uh, they used to print the news on them. No, um, I used to have newspaper articles pinned up to a, a, um, a cork board in my bedroom and stuff. Anytime there's anything about this, um, the mosquitoes in amber is real. The one that Hammond has on his cane is actually a real, authentic specimen. Right. Um, Which you used to be able to buy. At that's Universal what in- actually inspired Spielberg to say, you know, oh, it's on an adventure of sixty-three million years in the making, or whatever. Um, but um, it was pretty quickly proven to be implausible and impossible to extract ancient DNA from any of those preserved bugs, mosquitoes, or flies, or whatever. Um, cloning, as we know, is obviously entirely possible. You would just have to get complete strands of DNA. They have recently found um, tyrannosaur remains that did have, they were able to recover some red blood cells and I think a little bit of bone marrow, but it's, you know, you're, it's, unfathomably old um, and impartial and incomplete. So it's very, very unlikely. Um, but all it would take would be finding complete strand of DNA and then maybe you could do it. One day. Yeah, maybe. One I mean, they're, they've talked about trying to do it with mammoths because we found complete preserved frozen mammoths. Um, 
but again, it's, you know, it's a scientific quandary. It's an ethical quandary. It's uh, what would happen if you, you know, people asking all the questions that InGen should have asked. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking, so. speaking of InGen, we get our introduction to B.D. Wong's character, Dr. Henry Wu, which I did not know until my rewatch of Jurassic World. He was in that. He is. It was a big thing to bring him back. Yeah. Um, he's a great character. Uh, B.D. Wong's a great actor. Yeah. Um, a much larger character in the book. If you're interested in like the science stuff of Jurassic Park, but don't want to be bored by reading actual textbooks, um, all that stuff is in the novel. Yeah. Um, and Spielberg came up with the idea of let's have a cartoon explain all of this exposition super quickly. And that's where the Mr. DNA character comes from. I love the Mr. DNA character. It's so good. And it should be cheesy and dumb and not work, but it does for some yeah. reason, you know? Um, but yeah, um, Henry Wu is the character that he's the geneticist that created this process and really kickstarted all of this stuff. And he's a much larger character in the novel for those mm-hmm. of us that, that liked the character. Uh, but yeah, we get introduced to him. We get introduced to his little nursery. Um, we learn very quickly how it all works. Um, there's some really great scenes here in this little workshop before we move on. Um, yeah. Obviously, well, the mean- Mr. You mentioned the eth- the ethics of doing this in real life. I mean, the group debates like the ethics of cloning. Yep. Um, here, you see that through them. Like, is this a good idea? Could we be playing God right now? Yeah, and it's done really, really well. Um, the scene with Wu and the you know the very famous life finds a way moment mm-hmm. is done. It's filmed so brilliantly. Well, you're watching Grant and Sattler and uh, Hammond fawn over this raptor that is hatching and you're so instantly immediately captivated going oh my god i'm watching a dinosaur hatch Mm -hmm. that spielberg went okay well you're drawn into this scene and invested let's throw some exposition here let's explain why they're all females and how that works and what the repercussions of that are it's just an example of the brilliance of the filmmaking in this movie uh, but yeah, and then they move on and they're discussing the uh, the ethics of what they've done. What have we done? Why, you know, like, was it okay to do this? All of that. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and then we're introduced to what I feel when I was a kid were my personal eyes into this film. It was Hammond's grandchildren, Lex and Tim, um, for like a tour of the park. Um, I know a lot of people now kind of we do don't get the, like these two. We do get um, the raptor feet. That's true. We do. We do get the raptor feeding. Um, but how do, how do you feel about Tim and Lex? Um, it's not easy. Like, it's not easy to act in general, but mm-hmm. it's not easy to act scared. Yeah. Um, and both, both kids did an absolutely fantastic job. Um, I understand why a lot of people don't like child actors. There can be annoying or grading or um, maybe the writing for the the characters isn't great because you're worried about what the kids can handle and that kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. um, these two, and I think Mazzello in, in, in particular, like gives a legitimately great performance in the movie. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, these kids are, are pretty fun. They're a little annoying to some parts. They're a little underdeveloped, like, um, you hear Lex all the time be like, I'm a hacker. And then sure, she does it at the end, but it's not like, <laughs> like, oh, I'm a hacker. And, yeah, oh, that's cool. It uh, was computer technology in the, in the early 90s. 90s. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I like these kids a lot. They're fun. They're, they're the child's eyes throughout the movie because I can't be Alan Grant. At least I couldn't have then, but I could have been Tim very easily. Right. And 
their relationship with Grant is great too because um, there's there was a, a really good change I think made in the screenplay where in the book Grant loves kids so he just immediately loves kids in the movie Grant doesn't like kids and he has to grow to learn to love kids uh, which is essentially his character development right so making that change to give him that little bit of extra character development there um, I think really helped being invested in what he was doing you know because you're watching these kids in peril and you're like oh well this guy doesn't like kids is he gonna help them or is he just gonna sit there and watch these kids die right you know so um yeah yeah, and and we get that throughout the entire film when he's saving them from the car falling off of the i don't want to call it a cliff but like the the runway essentially or Mm -hmm. he's protecting them from um the t-rex or when they're in that tree and they're in the middle of the thunderstorm he's you know trying to keep them warm trying to keep them safe yeah absolutely um it's great because you really through his eyes you're seeing them as a worthwhile presence mm-hmm. um now moving on we get the you we touched on a little bit there's the dennis nedry scene where he's kind of orchestrating his whole plan mm-hmm. you get the uh the park getting kind of shut off and this is kind of when all hell breaks loose everything starts to go wrong the movie starts to really kick into that third gear um Nedry dies, and I've never been able to pronounce this right. I think it's Dilophosaurus. It is the Dilophosaurus, yes. yeah. In, in one of the most unconventionally comedic scenes in the movie, because he's stuck in this rainstorm. He can't. He's trying to escape the island with the embryos. He, he he's fat. I'm I, not. Yeah. So, how do you best describe a Dilophosaurus? Uh, yeah. I mean, they're possibly the most distinctive looking dinosaur in the movie. Um, they're bipedal. Uh, kind of like a smaller version of the raptors with uh, kind of like a big distinctive crest on their head. Um, and then when it's time to strike, they have this brightly colored frill that kind of shoots out from their neck, um, like the frilled lizards in Australia, which doesn't do you any good if you're having me describe you this dinosaur, you don't know what they look like. <laughs> um, but it's kind of, you know, it's like a, like a rattlesnake thing or, you know, it's like a threatening, brightly colored frill. Um and then they, they go from looking rather mundane to absolutely terrifying. Yeah. Um, they have like a shorter snout than some of the other dinosaurs, which is fairly distinctive. And I think if I recall correctly, and I might be wrong, they had double rows of teeth as a result of that. It did look like it, yes. Yeah. So, and then of course they spit venom, um, which is just ridiculous yeah. and terrifying. If these I things love aren't too, scary enough, I mean, like when, if you go back to when they're on the tour, the first area they go is the Dilophosaurus yeah. area, and you hear the voice say, "There's a herd of Dilophosaurus." Yeah. So there's more of these, and you see you see two in this scene. I think there's more actually, but like you said, they're they're already scary enough, and then they can spit venom at you, which makes them even more terrifying. Because if you you're not going to be able to outrun it, but if you somehow do, it's going to be able to kind of ensnare you with that spit. Yep. Yeah. I mean, they're not really going to be chasing you down a whole lot. They're just going to blind you and paralyze you and then eat you at their leisure. Yeah, so. exactly. I mean, so then after this, we get, you know, the powers cut off the tour that uh, the characters are on stops. We didn't even talk about the, is he the lawyer essentially that I'm thinking of? Correct. Uh, that, the, that's on the general. tour with him. Yeah. 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 So we get, I'd say one of the most iconic scenes in this, the T-Rex paddock scene. Um, This is the one that, as a kid, everyone probably remembers the most. Um, Do we want to kind of just go ahead and jump right into it? What is so special about this? Why is it 
terrifying, awesome, and exhilarating at the same time? The scene starts pretty mundane. We cut back to the tour, and it's it's Grant and Malcolm because Sattler stayed behind with the with the vet. Um, but just it's a very very brief scene. But man, the chemistry between Sam Neill and Jeff Goldblum is so good, yeah. and they're they're just so far too little. But you know, he makes the crack about how he's always on the lookout for a future ex Mrs. Malcolm. Um, <laughs> and then the power goes out in the car stop, and we kind of get a little bit of like what's going to happen. We're just waiting in the cars, and then. Tim finds his night vision goggles and then that damned goat dies. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, the goat, the chewed up goat leg drops on the car. And then you get one of just the most incredible scenes of just the T Rex's hand kind of sliding off of the electric fence as the T Rex has realized that this fence isn't electrified anymore. Yeah. And it's just, it's, it's just like the, the, the penny drops and it's just like, oh my God what's about to happen yeah i mean does this scene affect you the same way as a as a 30 plus year old as it did when you were a seven-year-old when i was um, a kid and i went to see this the old you know when you're a kid and you hide your eyes when you go watch a movie the only scene according to my dad that i you know was scared and hid my eyes at was actually the dilophosaurus scene <laughs> i wasn't scared at the t-rex scene now um i think that the T-Rex in this movie and in, in this particular moment, I would argue is the scariest movie monster in existence. Oh, wow. That's a bold statement. It is terrifying. Yeah. It is huge. It's dark. You can't really ever clearly see all of it. It's obviously, you know, maybe not Raptor level intelligence, but it's obviously smart enough to figure out how to get out that the fence is down. It's kind of exploring. It's cautious. And then, I mean, the sound design is just so brilliant. Like that's as far as I'm concerned, that's what a T-Rex sounded like. Oh, absolutely. You know? like, I mean, and it's, they could it's, clone one today and it could, it could roar. And I'd be like, Nope, it's not right. <laughs> no, exactly. It's um, yeah. It's, there's so much tension and you're, you're with Grant watching the other car and you're with Malcolm watching the other car and your Gennaro just bolts. And like, I don't even know if I, I think, Um, and then this, um, Ariana Richards and, and Joseph Mazzello are amazing in this scene, yeah. being attacked by the T-Rex in that car. Just absolutely amazing. Yeah, and this is where you get a good mix of, again, uh, practical and CGI effects mm-hmm. um, with the, I guess you'd call it the snout, the mouth of the T-Rex bursting into their Jeep. Yes. It's practical, and these kids had to be under that pressure of at least probably pretty close to 100 pound plus. Oh, the, the the puppet, the animatronic was massive because yeah. um, it was about from it was from the torso up. I think it was fully animatronic. Um, and this is where the brief technical issues they did have a la Jaws were because it was actually raining because a huge hurricane actually hit the islands while they were filming in Hawaii. Right. Um, the foam rubber that made up the skin of, skin of the T-Rex would absorb water and get impossibly heavy and then the, <laughs> the machine would like start to malfunction um and kathleen kennedy would say that like they'd be at lunch and it would just like come to life while everyone was like <laughs> eating lunch and just scare the shit out of everybody uh but yeah i mean it's just i look at it though i look at that animatronic and i go that's probably the easiest acting of their lives because <laughs> like, they're actually it, scared it is horrifying yeah. terrifying and at the same time absolutely mesmerizing Oh yeah, it, it's like you're in awe and 
terror at the exact same time. That's the best. That's the best aspect about horror is you're scared, but it's helping qualm those anxieties and those fears that you're having. And you're like you said, you're in awe of what you're about to see. And then you have kind of the the scene where Malcolm gets. I thought he died when I first saw it. Obviously, he doesn't. Um, Gennaro does. However, he gets devoured by the T Rex. And then you have the scene where they're driving away, and the the T Rex is in the mirror. The scene that oh, can't actually yeah. happen because it's it's you know not possible, but it's just right. one of the coolest scenes ever. Yeah. The objects in the mirror may appear yeah. closer than they and that, are. That must go faster line, right? <laughs> which to me is just like like that's. I mean, I know that the life finds a way is like the iconic line, but like must go faster is the line that for whatever reason has always stuck with me. And then Goldblum says that line in Independence Day, also like yes, years later. Does. Um, and in the lost world, they're climbing up the rope and he goes, increase your rate, increase your rate of climb. It's just like this funny little runner, but like, that's, yeah, that scene is amazing to me, them being chased. And it's so, it's like, I've never had a scene in like an open car where I felt claustrophobic, but with like Malcolm trying to cram his way into the front seat with the other, like, it's just, I don't know. It's just, it's just so good. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. We mentioned that you, you feel, you feel the fear, you feel the excitement. Uh, and it's it's just phenomenal. I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, you've probably seen the scene. Can't say enough good things about it. Um, and the T-Rex, as you said, just looks, it's it's scary. It is a big creature that these people have never seen before that's coming at them. And in their mind, they're about to die. Yep. Yeah. And in your mind, they're about to die, too. Because you're like, well, they're, they're done. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. Um, and then you get the sweet scene where Malcolm's on, uh, as you mentioned, um, some pain medication, and he's sitting there in the sexy gold bloom pose. Everyone's <laughs> seen. Like, this is where you get like a lot of exposition spouted, like what's the next plan? Yeah, what are we gonna do next? Um, we haven't talked about him, but if you didn't know, Samuel Motherfucking Jackson's in this movie. Yep, playing Ray Arnold. He's uh, he's the lead tech. Nedry was like the lead engineer, and then Arnold's like the guy that's actually running stuff on a day to day basis. Yeah, and he gets uh, he gets. He goes to turn the power back on. He knows the, the sort of route to do it. Um, and what I always thought was kind of a funny scene when um, Settler actually goes to do it. And then she feels a hand on her and she believes it's Arnold. And it's, it's like just his, it's just his funny. decapitated hand, essentially. It's, it's so well done because it's like she's terrified because that raptor just jumped out. So you're terrified, too. Yes. And then she's immediately relieved with his because his, his, she feels his hand. And you're like, oh, my God, everything's going to be OK. And then it's like it's such a good you're like being distracted from what's happening as you're watching it happen. Right. Absolutely. It, it's like kind of funny. And then immediately the Raptors right back there. And it's, it's just, it, it's just like that perfect blend of everything all at once. Yeah. I should mention that she's in kind of these underground tunnels, which a lot of, you know, electrical stuff is stored. And as she is down there, the Raptors, um, which are now free are kind of hunting her. And, what I think is one of the best jump scares in movie history is that Raptor hits the fucking gate out of nowhere. Yeah. It just comes and, out behind her. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And scares the shit out of you. It's her. so good. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And uh, interesting little note too. I mentioned that the hurricane, hurricane Iniki hit. Um, I guess Sam Jackson was actually supposed to film a really long, like chase and death scene in that bunker. And the hurricane completely destroyed the set. So they just cut the scene. It's. I mean, honestly, that's one of those things that is a blessing in disguise because yep. his death, where you don't see it, is so much mm-hmm. more impactful than probably 
seeing him die and feeling you know terrible about it. Absolutely. Yeah. And this is where Sattler's character really starts to come out. You know, they decide who's going to go. Her and Muldoon are going to go. And she has that great line where Hammond's like, well, I should go because I'm a man. And she's like, we'll discuss sexism in survival situations when I get back. Yes, very progressive. Uh, it's just such a great, like, little bit. And then at the same time, while she's in the bunker, we get, um, you know, it's been memed to hell. <laughs> the, but the clever, the clever girl. girls, it's, it's such a good scene. Yeah. It's such a good scene. Again, yeah, and like and Muldoon's the, the kind of strong male in theory. He's the he's the he's the game warden. Character. He's the raptor expert. You know, yeah. he's our guy that's gonna like help us get through this. And he cut. You kind of can just tell because like he sends Ellie on her way, and you kind of can tell like I think this guy just knows he's fucked. Yep. <laughs> you and know. He, so he gets. He sees the raptors in the. He sees a raptor in kind of the distance, and what he doesn't know is that one baiting him, so the other raptor to his left can attack him, and that's where you get the fantastic clever girl line. Even in death, even though he knows he's going to die, Muldoon is still probably just he's a, a complete um, badass. He's a hero. He's a badass. Yeah, and also if you like the character, again, much bigger, more present character in the book too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So and yeah, then, and then we have. Uh, Tim's Tim the human piece of toast yeah, right. you know um, something I always thought looked fun until you realize it's probably not very fun until you realize the odds of survival are next to zero yeah no it's just those poor those kids can't catch a break and I love he takes them and he drops them off Grant drops the kids off in the kitchen he's gonna go find the others right the yeah. kids are safe in the kitchen why wouldn't they be safe in the kitchen they don't know the raptors are loose and there's the buffet from the day before or whatever and you just watch Tim just stumble up and he picks up the two pie servers, one in each hand. And it's just, it's what Spielberg does. It's such an honest, pure child thing, you know, like I'm just going to go to this table and I'm going to eat all these fucking cakes. Right. Absolutely. (laughs) It's a little bit of levity before another scene. That's just pure terror. And it's like you said, the kitchen scene where the, the Raptors who don't have opposable thumbs, are, are so clever and so smart that they figure out a way to get into this locked kitchen where the kids right. are. Right. And right before this, you have the scene with Grant has found Hammond and Ellie and Malcolm. And he says, you're sure the other Raptors contained. And, and Ellie says, yeah, unless they figured out how to open doors. Right. Which I always was like, oh, it's just kind of like a, Haha, of course they're going to figure out how to open doors. But if you watch Laura Dern in that scene, as you can you can see the thought process that Ellie Sattler is going through as she says, unless they figured out how to open doors, because she's like smirking at the start of the sentence. And then you can see the progression her brain goes through as she gets to the end of that statement and she's realized they probably have figured out how to open doors. Yeah, they they know. Exa- and then it cuts brilliantly to the raptor at the door. Yep. Yeah, just, just fantastic. That was a, a, a you know, I've seen this movie a billion times and had never really clued really keyed in on that performance um and i really wanted to highlight it because like you i'm a big laura dern fan um so yeah just thought that that was great but yeah the the whole kitchen scene is amazing um poor tim just can't catch a break oh god at least he (laughs) survives i mean uh and there's the great misdirection with lex you think lex is screwed because she can't get the door down and then the raptor is attacking her reflection um just and I can't imagine how difficult that scene was film was to film because every surface in that room was reflective. You yeah, know? right. Uh, <laughs> Try to not get a had to be, Yeah, had to be a nightmare. Um, yeah, and then we move into the control room and we're going to try to get everything back up and running and get the security systems back up and running. And we have the fight with uh, 
you know, the Raptors trying to get in and they can't reach the gun and you're like, oh my God, what is this insane computer system that Lex is using? Right. You know? Um, and then the Raptors get in, man, and that one scene of the Raptors standing there and it's like listening to them up in the air ducts and it, the, the projector is going across the Raptor. <laughs> that, that is one of my favorite shots in the movie. And I don't, there's just something about, because that's, you have real world tangible interacting with the fantasy of that dinosaur. And it's, I don't know why, but for what, like that image will never leave my brain. Yeah. Again. And it's, it's a subtle thing that you may not notice the first time, but as you continue to watch the movie, you notice all these little touches that Spielberg puts in and we're wrapping up here. Um, super quick um, as they're crawling through the air ducts, the Raptor jumps up and attacks and Lex almost falls down and they pull her back up. Right. And and we touched on um, all the, the technological stuff they did in this movie. That was Ariana Richards stunt double. And 25 years before they're doing it in the MCU where they're digitally altering people's faces, they digitally replaced her stunt double's face with her with face. Hers, yeah. And it looks seamless for the most part. I mean, it you looks can see great. a little bit of wiggly on the side of like the yeah. but Yeah, and I, I don't I can't say that's the first movie they ever did that in because I didn't research that. But I mean like it definitely was one of the first movies they did that in. Right. Newer technology that, mm-hmm. that look like I said looks pretty good. And then we get the the fantastic Raptors versus T-Rex fight, which these are my two favorite dinosaurs. I know that sounds very basic, but you get to see the the Raptors try and outsmart the T-Rex, and they're just not enough for it's... Not the original ending of the movie, by the way. Which was? The original ending of the movie was there was no T-Rex. Yep. Um, Grant uses, like, a scissor lift to, like, lift a raptor up into the jaws of... Because the whole point was, like, the juxtaposition of living dinosaur and dinosaur bones. Yeah. Um, and they got to the end, and they're like, well, people probably want to see the T-Rex again. Because if you think about it, up to this point, you've had uh, two or three minutes of T-Rex on screen, maybe. Um, so, yeah, the T-Rex comes back and gets to be the hero. And from that point on, you're always rooting for the T-Rex. It's like the anti-hero of the Jurassic Park franchise. Right. Um, yeah, and then Hammond and Malcolm show up, and they get, I still want one of those Jeeps. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know? I want the sign that says, uh, when, when dinosaurs, dinosaurs rule the, the earth. I mean, it's one of the coolest signs. I know I can buy it at universal studios but how about the jurassic park worker uniform of khaki pants and light pink polo yeah i mean it, <laughs> it was the 90s mike but yeah you get uh, this epic fight between two yeah creatures and you get the best t-rex roar which just makes your ears pop it's and... just so mesmerizing you like you can't you can't not be fascinated watching it yeah, absolutely. And the T-Rex also is a returning character in Jurassic World, which yep. we'll get to. We're not going to review, but we'll get to like a little touch on that later. Yeah, I've got but, some notes for you on the sequels. Yeah. Yeah. But And then Hammond uh, arrives in a Jeep with Malcolm, and all of them board the helicopter, and they leave. And you get, again, some more character moments with the kids falling asleep on Grant and Laura Dern kind of looking knowingly at him like, yeah, you do want kids. It's going to work out for us. (laughs) You stupid son of a bitch. (laughs) Which you think is great until you see Jurassic Park three and you're like, well, that fucking meant nothing, but yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's interesting too, because uh, in to touch on the novel briefly, like they don't have a relationship in the novel. (laughs) She, she has a relationship with someone else. It's literally grad student professor is their relationship. So, um, yeah, and then the movie ends with them in the helicopter watching those pelicans fly with obviously the link to dinosaurs evolved into birds. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, it's 
my wife watched this movie with me last night. She's obviously seen Jurassic Park before, but she says, I can't believe that this is how this movie ends. And it's, it's in, it's, it's the perfect ending, but it's like the most unassuming you would not sit down and watch Jurassic Park and predict how the movie ends. Yeah, absolutely. On a, on a very, I mean, granted there's a lot of death, a lot of destruction, but in theory on a very bright note, yeah, our heroes survive, which ultimately is all we're ever rooting for. Yeah, except for Samuel Jackson. <laughs> except for Samuel Jackson. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, eaten alive. Um, eaten alive. Yeah. Um, let's let's get into grades for Jurassic Park, and then we'll kind of touch on everything that's happened, the legacy of the film afterwards. So, Mike, I mean, you already said at the beginning about an hour ago, this is your favorite movie. Yeah, A plus isn't good enough. <laughs> like this is. This is one of those. There's, there's obviously, there's a lot of movies I would give an A plus rating to. There's a lot of movies I love. There's a lot of movies I think are are amazing, important movies. But there's very few movies that I think are are just like perfect isn't even a good enough word. And that's this movie, you know. I mean, it's that's... something that you look on. So whatever grade that is, <laughs> let's say yeah. an A plus with an infinity symbol next to it. There you go. And a cherry on top. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I can't agree more. This is a perfect movie. Spielberg is probably the director who has the most amount of perfect movies in my book. This film gets an A plus for me as well. It is, it is just magical to watch from beginning to end. I've seen it a hundred times at least. And I am enthralled every time I watch it. I don't discover something new every time. But I get excited about what I'm going to see every time. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, you know, it's like I said before, like, sure, I would be super curious to see what this movie would look like in the hands of Joe Dante. And I would love to see storyboards for a Tim Burton Jurassic Park. But like nobody else could have made this movie. Yeah, no, not at all. And it's I mean, it's the same thing with, say, Tim Burton's Edward Scissorhands. Only Tim Burton could have made that movie. Right. Only Steven Spielberg could have made this. Only Steven Spielberg could have made Jaws. I think even Schindler's List, only Steven Spielberg could have probably made that. But this is, it's not my favorite Steven Spielberg movie. It's definitely top three. Mine, very uh, controversially, is E.T. But he, from in 1975, in 1982, and 1993, he has made at least three A-plus films. And I think that is pretty spectacular. And they're all three different kinds of movies. Sure, Jaws and Jurassic Park are monster movies or horror movies, but they deal with different aspects of what makes them so good. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I agree. I mean, I haven't, full disclosure, I haven't watched E.T. since I was a kid. Um, so <laughs> I have I have no position to discuss E3, but I did just watch Jaws again on the 4th of July, and Jaws is also a perfect movie. Yeah. Um, Spielberg said at one point, and I don't know when he said this, so I can't give you that, but he did say the quote is, he was just trying to make a good sequel to Jaws on land. And, and uh, he did. <laughs> he absolutely did. You know, his his big influences other than his own movies, like obviously Godzilla was a huge influence and the uh, 1925 uh, The Lost World based on the Sir Arthur Conan Doyle movie because it's about dinosaurs. And, right. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just like, it's just one of those things, it's lightning in a bottle, which is weird to say because it's now a six movie franchise and it's a right. huge franchise. But like, I, you know, and it, you look at it and you go, okay, obviously Universal knew this movie was going to work. Before, you know, they, they, they spent $2 million on the film rights. Um, they had a 65 million. The budget for the movie was $63 million in 1990, which is about $124 million now. Um, so they spent $63 million to make the movie. They spent $65 million marketing the movie. They had um, licensing agreements with over 100 different companies for this movie. 
like like they knew this movie was gonna be huge and it obviously was you know it made a billion dollars would you say it, it was gonna be jurassic <laughs> no it's cretaceous <laughs> um no man it's uh yeah, I mean, it led to the Jurassic generation. Um, so many people were interested in dinosaurs as a result of this movie and the book that paleontology actually had a huge boost. Tons and tons of people were were majoring in paleontology and entering the field and investing tons of money in it. And as a result, there were thousands of new discoveries and advancements. And like like this movie literally changed the world. It changed the film industry. It changed technology. It changed science. Yeah, and I mean to it to changed the NBA. That... The Toronto Raptors formed in '95. They That's named true. themselves the Toronto Raptors because of the movie. Yeah, and, and to to kind of piggyback off Jaws again, um, another film that, as we all joke, made people get scared, make people scared to go back in the water. But it also Jaws helped alleviate, not alleviate, um, elevate marine biology because people yep. were interested in like sharks and sea life, and then something like. Um, this, as you said, helped paleontology and even Indiana Jones, when Spielberg directed that in the eighties, helped with archeology, archeological digs and a lot of funding goes towards that. So, I mean, Spielberg has kind of helped with science a lot. It's really easy to look at at stuff that exists in your current life and your current focusing and be like, well, yeah, I love it, but like, it's just a movie, right? Like they're just movies, but I and it and it feels weird to really praise stuff that exists in your current realm, you know. But I I believe, and this is this is a big statement, and it's just going to sound weird when I say it. But like in blank number of years, people will look back on someone like Steven Spielberg in the way that we look back on someone like Leonardo da Vinci, you know. Like it's just art. Exactly, it, it's art, but it's beyond art. It's yeah. it is culture. You know, I like, absolutely agree. I mean, this movie is so important that in 2018 it was selected for their preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress. So it's it's, it's so big. historically and aesthetically significant. It met all three criteria. Yeah, I mean, let's just look at it. Is currently July 2020, and in June 2020, it was the number one movie in the box office. Yeah, thanks to the drive-ins. Luckily, thanks um, to the drive-ins, yeah. right? Because yes, we have COVID and the world's crazy and all of that. But like. 27 years to the month after it's for the fourth time in its history yeah. it was the number one movie in the four separate times this movie was the number one movie in the box office yeah and to kind of say my favorite movie empire strikes back also did the same thing this past month which is thanks again to covid the drive-ins have been helping granted a lot of people own these movies i'm sure but you get to it doesn't matter well, i've i've gone to see jurassic park in theaters at every single opportunity i've had that's excellent i mean and that's that's fantastic that it's something that still excites you and obviously other people so much that you're like hey i own this but i can go see it and that makes that special like i own what's a movie that i can look at at my shelf right now uh um, yeah well no I, I will go see halloween in the theaters and i own i own judge dread and i like judge dread but i'm not going to go see judge dread in the theater right but i will go to a drive-in or to a theater to see a special release of jurassic park yeah absolutely th- that that's not something I can say for a lot of movies. Halloween, I can say that for. But um, and then you mentioned sort of the licensing on this. It had yeah. millions upon millions mm-hmm. of dollars of licensing. Um, it had it has its own theme park ride, which is actually my favorite theme park ride of all time. Now I'm going to give Jurassic- you 
Jurassic World the ride, but it used to be Jurassic Park the ride. I'm going to give you a little bit of a little tidbit about that ride too. What's that? So the movie cost $63 million to make. <laughs> the ride cost $100 million to make. Yep. Which is amazing. Uh, just astounding. <laughs> yeah. And if you've never um, ridden this ride, you can ride it at Universal. Well, not right now. Again, thanks, COVID. But you <laughs> can ride you it. At, and turn everything on. Yeah. You can ride it at the uh, Hollywood, Florida, Japan. And I think I think those are the three you can ride it at. Now Japan actually has its own, um, like, not just the ride. They have, like, a whole Jurassic area. They have, um, yeah. I think, part of the, the Workers' Village from the Lost World. They have the Visitor Center. Yeah, the Japan one I would love to go to because it's it's so above and beyond what the other parks have. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, this is my favorite ride ever since I first went to Universal Studios. And they've now, like I said, rebranded it Jurassic World the Ride, which I've yet to ride. I'm sure it's still pretty awesome. Um, but I think it's pretty much almost exactly the same ride. Yeah. I mean, so. you, Ryan, and I got in a little debate about what if Jaws didn't have the word Jaws on it? Is it the most recognizable movie poster? And we all agreed until you said, well, if you took out the Jurassic Park of the movie poster, everyone would know what that was. Mm-hmm. too. And that's, mm-hmm. yeah. I'd say these two are probably the easiest to recognize without seeing the words on it. Yeah. And I wanted to touch on that because you talked about the marketing and the merchandising and the branding. It's just so, I mean, you look at, I could name maybe like two or three other movie posters where 90% of the movie poster is just black. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's just that logo and everybody knows that logo, the silhouette of the T-Rex skull. And it's, I mean, it has to be as identifiable worldwide as anything else. You yeah, know? absolutely. And the movie went on to spawn four sequels. No, one, two, three. Yeah. Four sequels. A fifth, a fifth one coming next year. Yeah. yeah. So let's, I mean, let's briefly touch on those. We gave this an A plus. I highly doubt any of the sequels will get the A plus rating, but in 97, you had the lost world Jurassic part two, which Yep. Didn't have Grant or um, Ellie in it, but it did have Ian Malcolm. Yep. Um, so, do, do you like it? So the movie was so Jurassic Park. The movie was so popular, um, and Spielberg liked it so much that he he actually asked Crichton to write a sequel so that he could make a movie based on it. And Crichton had never written a sequel before, and he eventually did. In '95, the book came out, The Lost World, <laughs> and then in '97, the movie. And it's funny that Spielberg asked him to write a book because the, the movie and the book are as different as could be. Right. Um, I just watched The Lost World this morning. I love that movie. I do, I, too. I loved it when it came out. I love it now. Yeah. Um, it's, a lot I, of, it's a lot of fun. It's so, it's, yeah, it's definitely not as dark as the first movie is, but it's, it's such a good adventure film and it's such a good monster movie. And uh, originally it didn't have the whole San Diego bit in it. And I know that a lot of people dislike it because of the San Diego thing. And Spielberg had originally intended to save that for the third movie. But when he realized he wasn't probably going to be able to do the third one, he's like, we just have to do it because it's too much fun not to do. And I agree. I never, I've never not liked the San Diego bit. Yeah, I love you know? the San Diego parts of that. And being native Californians as we are, granted, you're not as close to it as I was. Well, and San knowing in our state and knowing that Godzilla was such a big influence on the original movie that obviously like, well, this is your Godzilla now. Right. And like, I, yeah, I don't know. I love it. I also love, uh, this has nothing to do with the actual movie itself, but the, the scene in the video store that has so many great little Easter eggs, like Arnold Schwarzenegger starring in King Lear. Yes. <laughs> Which I kind of want to see. 
I would love to that and the the Tom Hanks surf movie that's <laughs> advertised. But yeah. yeah, I mean it was a success. Um, the budget for Lost World was seventy three million. It made six hundred and twenty almost in the box office. Um, I I love it, man. Julianne Moore's great. Vince Vaughn is great. Super um, funny. Yeah, no, it's super good. The cast of that movie is fantastic. Yeah, and then in um, two thousand one, we move on to the not Steven Spielberg directed, the Joe Johnston directed Jurassic yeah. Park three. Which I just heard your yeah, that's the same sort of thing. I guess here's the thing. Well, that was my that yeah was in response to Joe Johnston directing the movie, not necessarily the movie itself. Here's the problem with this movie: they had five different versions of the script, and they they filmed the whole movie without a finalized draft of the script. <laughs> Does that surprise you? Uh, no, it not at all. Me. I mean, I I like Jurassic Park three. I so Jurassic I World not. like or Jurassic Lost World. I give it an A. Right. I I don't think there's really anything wrong with it. I think it's fine. It's fun. It's not groundbreaking or anything right but whatever um Jurassic Park 3 is like a C plus because there's a lot to it that I like and there's just a lot to it that I don't um the the concept of like people getting stranded on site B is such a solid concept the Spinosaurus is great the Raptors are amazing um the the Pterodactyls are great the Pterodons are great even though like they're this weird amalgamation of like multiple different dinosaurs yeah um, but the characters aren't any good. Like I love William H Macy, but his character is terrible. And I love Tia Leone, but her character is terrible. Oh, the, the Kirby's are—they needed to not survive this film. And there's like five people in the movie, and everybody that dies dies in like the first half an hour. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this movie so is the stakes opinion, are low, indeed. but Laura Dern comes back briefly, and Sam Neill is Sam Neill is actually fantastic in Jurassic Park yeah. three, and it kind of gets lost because the movie's such a mess. But his performance is brilliant. Well, yeah, and the the one thing that I always remembered from this, even though I hadn't seen it, like I said, in nineteen years, except for recently, was the scene where Neil is on the airplane, he's dreaming, and he looks <laughs> over, and there's a raptor, and the raptor speaks to him and says, "Alan," and it's so fucking dumb. Like, well, I don't it's, get it's why. A, it's a genuinely terrible scene. Yeah. Genuinely terrible scene. And then there's the, uh, oh my God, it's a birdcage scene when they're in the... No, that you're, you are... Because <laughs> I, just, I just watched this movie like two hours ago. You're remembering that worse than it is in reality. The, the scene, I think, is the best part of the film. I just think the line delivery is pretty silly. You know, the, it's funny. Jurassic Park 3 actually has a number of things from the original novel that weren't used in either of the first two movies. And that was put, one of them? That was one of them, yeah. The, not, it doesn't go down exactly like that, but yeah, they go through the aviary. The other one is being chased down the river. In, in the book, it's the T-Rex. In the movie, it's the Spinosaurus. Um, yeah, I think it's cool. There's some cool dinosaurs in it. You get to see the Ankylosaurus and the Carnotosaurus are in it. and um, You know, it's, it's far from perfect, but it's not like, for me, it's not like a, oh, it's so bad, it's good. Like, I think it's just genuinely enjoyable. It's fun. Um, it's weirdly dark, but, like, the tone is so confused throughout the movie, you never really click into that. Mm-hmm. So, it's it's a hodgepodge. It's a movie. It definitely it's, happened. And it, it took 14 happened. years to get a sequel. It underperformed. Mass. It still made a ton of money. It cost $90 million. It made 360 But, like, that's it pulled half of the Lost World's box office. Yeah. So... And then, and then it took 14 years to get the Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard-led Jurassic World, which I think is a lot of fun as well. Um, I, I know it is very, love very Jurassic cool. World. I love Jurassic World. Um, it's, it's – here's the thing. We live in the age where – like this movie made $1.5 billion, right? People went to see it 
But we live in the internet age now where everybody has to have something bad to say. And yes, the movie treads familiar ground. Absolutely. Undeniable. So does The Force Awakens, right? It treads familiar ground. But that in and of itself does not make a movie bad. Um, And I really, really... So what the weird thing about Jurassic World is that it actually serves as a much better sequel to the original novel than it does to the original movie. Yeah, I would absolutely agree to that. It touches on a lot of things from the book that aren't in the movie. Mainly, the whole idea... And this is where I talked about how Henry Wu's character was bigger. I'm going to try to go through this super, super quick. But um, it kind of talks on the whole idea of, like, InGen patenting and creating DNA strands. And in the book, uh, in the Jurassic Park novel, Henry Wu is trying to convince Hammond to be like, let's kill all the dinosaurs. Let me rework all the gene strands. I'll make them bigger. I'll make them more brightly colored. I'll make them slower. They'll be better tourist attractions. Right? And Hammond's like, no, fuck you. I want them as close to original as possible. Uh, but the whole point is like that they were never original to begin with. They were mm-hmm. always modified with amphibian DNA or whatever. So fast forward to Jurassic World and they've brought that concept back. And that's why it was so cool that Wu came back. That's why the Indomitus Rex doesn't bother me because that idea existed in the original book. Yeah. Um, and I love that movie. I think the the scene where they're feeding the Mosasaur and it jumps up out of the water. And you, like, yeah, it's, it's, just, it's awesome so, scene. it's just it's a fun movie. Chris Pratt's great. That's the first time I've ever liked watching Bryce Dallas Howard on screen. I thought she was great. Um, <laughs> Not a big fan of her role as Gwen Stacy. You know, um, that's no. a movie that happened. <laughs> yeah, it was. All right. No, so, I, I love Jurassic World. Yeah. It's also got actually a really like cute cameo with Jimmy Fallon and the Jimmy Buffett cameo out of absolutely nowhere. Oh, so. dude, Jimmy, that's, that's more product placement than cameo, yeah. uh, which is a bummer because Jimmy Buffett sucks. But he does. <laughs> Um, my boss would hate you for that. And then That's in 2018, okay. we get, and I, the Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, which I know you have a lot of thoughts about. I'm going to let you in on a secret. I've owned this movie for two years. I have yet to watch it. Here's the thing about Fallen Kingdom. <laughs> <laughs> so, and that's where it ends. I literally just bought this movie today because it was $10 on 4K at Walmart. <laughs> You know, like I've never owned it. It made uh, it's it's still broke a billion dollars. It made a ton of money. It's a disaster. (laughs) Like I I said, I had not I had not seen it. I so I don't really want to. I encourage you to watch it. Um, The the basic is idea is that because the Elon Dublar and Elon Soren are, are part of a volcanic chain that the volcano on Elon Dublar is erupting. They need to evacuate the dinosaurs. Right. Okay. Fine, I can get behind that idea. Um, the stuff on Elon Dublar is actually pretty good because it's really just a ton of dinosaur stuff. Um, and then there's actually a really, really, really heartbreaking scene when they're leaving the island. And I was like, wow, that was like, I did not expect myself to have that kind of emotional response. And then the rest of the movie happens. <laughs> and it's like, it's it we're we're five movies into this franchise about cloning dinosaurs and now we've jumped the shark like completely and i hate so much that i will go see jurassic world dominion next year because universal was like hey people didn't like this movie as much 
let's get Sam Neill and Laura Dern and Jeff Goldblum to come back and they'll come see it. And yep, I'm going to go see it because exactly that reason. And, right. Like, it makes me so angry. I will say this. The opening sequence, the kind of like James Bondy pre-movie sequence of Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom is fantastic. Okay. Um, it's it's like the opening, like maybe five to eight minute sequence. And it's 100% old school, like Jurassic Park horror. Okay. Well, and that then, is a weird but, review on Jurassic Park Fallen Kingdom. Jurassic World yeah, Fallen Kingdom. I know. I went on a little <laughs> long there. I have... I really don't like that movie. And it right. me out, so. Like I said, I still haven't watched it, but I know I'm going to soon because Jurassic World and then the sequel are going to be on my list to watch very soon. But yeah, I mean, Jurassic Park has lived on for 27 years, at least the movies, the book for 30 plus, I believe. Um, you love this movie, obviously. Yep, I absolutely. love this movie. Everyone who's seen it loves this movie. If you say you're not, I think you're lying. Um, do you want to give just one final thought before we head out on, on Jurassic Park, Mike? I just think it's perfect. I mean, that's just, it's just that simple. I don't think that there's, there is no other movie that does what this movie does. All right. Well, that's high praise for Jurassic Park. And Mike, again, I want to thank you for joining me. As I've said before, you will be back quite soon for us. My pleasure, Tommy. I love being here. We're going to tackle the Bond films very soon. Man, I can't wait. Settle in. That's going to be a ride. Yeah, because... Again, I like James Bond, but you love James Bond. So I do. Yeah. This is going to be very interesting. Um, we're going to tackle it. I hope actor by actor is kind of what my plan is. And then we'll finish it off with a No Time to Die review if that actually does end up coming out. But, Mike, do you want to plug your socials uh, for everyone to try and follow you on? I mean, if you want to, I'm either at TheVlaz, <laughs> T-H-E-V-L-A-Z, or at Mike Vlaz on whatever social media platform. Um, I'm not doing a whole lot of social media stuff right now, but if you follow me on Instagram, you can see a lot of cool pictures of my cats. So His, cats are, his cats are pretty cool, and one of them is named after the, my third favorite vampire. Probably your first favorite. <laughs> my, my first favorite vampire, yeah. yeah. Barlow from Salem's Lot. Yeah, um, absolutely. All right. And you can follow me personally at Pop Culture Tommy on Instagram. You can follow Phenomenal Flicks Podcast on Instagram and find Phenomenal Flicks on Facebook. Once I get my password reset, I will have a Twitter. Um, so look forward to that. Probably by the time this airs, the, the password will be reset. But that's beside the point. We're recording a little early. Um, and you can also follow my media group, Two Week Media on instagram facebook and twitter as well where you can find other great podcasts that we offer mike do you have any closing thoughts before we go Uh, life finds a way (laughs) and women inherit the earth thank you again mike from enjoying enjoying well enjoying this podcast and this this review with me thank you for enjoying jurassic park because i had someone to talk to thank you for joining me i look forward to talking to you soon And as always, guys, stay phenomenal. All right, perfect. Yeah, that was great. Awesome. I just got to do a little bit of editing with the Dilophosaurus thing. But other than that, it's going to be pretty easy. If you tell me, Tommy, we could probably arrange a co-watch of Fallen Kingdom. I could probably get I could probably get in on that. (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah might be fun. I, yeah now that you own it we can definitely watch it together yeah yeah uh yeah uh, anyway I gotta, I gotta make dinner all right man well, my enjoy your, enjoy right your steak wow. Shelly's making dinner she gets all the credit hi Shelly yes. Tommy says hi hi <laughs> <laughs>
She all says right. hi. Thanks. All man. right. Later, buddy. Bye.